Amen. And thank you, uh, Matt and the team on both floors and all of those who are quite literally seated directly above me here on the second floor. We want to give you warm holiday welcome and greetings and invite you to come and to continue to worship in the preparation of Advent. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I think more than most Christmases or Advent seasons I can remember in recent memory, this Advent season feels a little bit different than most others. It feels like the days are somewhat unique, and we could all go through and discuss and describe why these days are a little bit stranger than perhaps other Advent seasons that you and I have enjoyed and experienced previously. Nonetheless, we find ourselves in the liturgical church calendar in the Advent season, preparing for Christmas. And if you've been moving around at all in the city of Tyler, you will notice that virtually everybody with a pulse is moving around hurriedly, trying to get something done as though that is the new justification. How's it going? Well, I'm busy. The busier I am, the more righteous I am, or so we somehow seem to think in our flesh. And there's a whole lot of hurrying around, and as Joshua mentioned earlier as he was lighting the Advent candle, a lot of hustling and bustling. And the reality is there's also an angst, an anxiety, an unsettledness. There's a a fear and a futility. Well, one of the things that I want to share with us this morning goes very simply like this, that Christmas is God's invasion and intervention into human futility and fear so that man can again have peace with God. That's not often how we think of Christmas and the Advent season. We think of it as a destination, a goal, an end point that we get to where we can finally go, ah, fat pants, fireplaces, and fudge. Ah. But no, Christmas is the invasion, the intrusion, the intervention into the fear and futility of man, so that man can again have peace with God. Here's what I want to say as directly as I possibly can. It's our big idea for the morning as we continue in our Advent sermon series through this month of December. It's our big idea, and it goes like this. Christmas is the end of fear. And I think perhaps now, more than in recent years, I can't say forever, But we need to be reminded of that, that Christmas is the end of fear. I saw someone recently say, this has been the craziest year ever unless you were alive in any other point in history. Because there's always been crazy, horrible, atrocious things going on in human history. Exactly. And into that mess comes the vulnerable Son of God. Now, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and the, the section of Matthew's telling of the coming of the Christ. And Matthew's thrust, his theme is that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. Next week, we're going to look at John chapter 1, but this morning, we're going to turn to a very familiar passage. It's in Luke chapter 2. Luke trying to convey to us, this great physician and historian, that Jesus is the rightful son of man, the Lord and the commander of the host of the armies of heaven. It's a familiar passage, and unfortunately, sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. I don't know that I've ever gone through a Christmas season 
where Luke chapter 2 was not in some way articulated, either in a family setting, at a Christmas Eve service at church, or even perhaps Linus standing there with his blanket reciting Luke chapter 2. So it's a familiar passage, but I will confess to you this week in preparation, I have been rocked all over again by the wonder and the grandeur of this passage. We're going to study rather efficiently this morning Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now, you've already heard the second portion of this passage read this morning as we lit the Advent candle. So I'm going to walk through this fairly efficiently. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In those days, in those days, perhaps you've heard this story read or taught, maybe even preached. In those days is one of the most significant pivots of the entire Christmas story. In those days. Well, what days? What does he mean? We forget the tragedy and the travesty that man in those days does not have peace with God. They are at enmity. They are at war. They are at strife. There is conflict There's collision between God and man that was made in his image. It's horrible. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And we're told that cherubim with flaming swords guard the access and the entrance because man can no longer have peace with God. It's finished. And yet God says, I will myself at some point enter in and bridge that gap. I will breach the distance. The patriarchs come in Genesis chapter 12, and we have the nation of Israel that is born, but they persistently fall and fail. Finally, by the time we get to the last prophet of the Old Testament, it's Malachi. And the Old Testament ends with this, curse, destruction. Because man does not have peace with God, and God begins to be silent for four centuries. And the last thing he says in the Old Testament is, I will send one lest I wipe out the earth. Again, a flicker of hope. I will send the one on that great and awesome or terrible day of the Lord. I will send one. And for four centuries, God is silent. And a lot changes in those 400 years. The Persian Empire is sovereign at the end of Malachi's ministry. And then comes the Greeks. Alexander the Great brings in Hellenization. And then they're defeated. And Rome is the superpower. Julius Caesar has risen. He's united the empire, the Roman lake that is the Mediterranean Sea. And now his adopted nephew, uh, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, is the king of the world who bears the title Caesar Augustus, savior of the world, who has instituted and implemented the Pax Romana, literally the Roman peace. There is no war in the empire at this time. And that's great news. Unless, of course, you happen to not be Roman. At which point, there are heavy, burdensome, powerful, and corrupt leaders instituting taxation on you. And it is an egregious time. You are occupied. You are invaded. In those days, it was not beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. Perhaps we can relate and insert ourselves somewhat into the text. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, except that he wasn't. That's a 
errant translation. It should probably say before Quirinius was governor of Syria. We know when he was governor of Syria, it was not during the birth of Christ. So this is a little bit of an English translation. Oopsie. It should be before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Doesn't affect the doctrine at all. Don't get wrapped around the axle on that guy. Verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. You see, Caesar Augustus is king of the world. And as all human governments do, they seek to bolster and to build their empire. And they almost always exclusively, every government, does so at the expense and the cost of the citizenry. And so this emperor, the savior of the world, imposes a tax that will fill his coffers so that he can continue to reign. What does that convey? That it's somewhat in question. And everybody in this region of Palestine has to return to their city of origin to be registered. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Caesar Augustus sits in his throne room in Rome thinking that he's governing the world. But all along, God is pulling every single string. See, they all had to go to their native place of origin. Mary was not actually of the tribe of David and did not have to go. Well, she was from Judah, but she did not have to go. But we know that they understood that she was going to be born during this time. And so she goes, very pregnant, and walks the four days that it takes to get from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. What an inconvenience, by the way. Having never been pregnant, I can only imagine having to walk four days while pregnant because some guy in another country on the other side of the known world says, I have to go and register. They have to walk four days. They go through Jerusalem. It's about four miles or so south of Jerusalem. And she goes with him because they know that this baby, that's not his, is going to be born during this time. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child, even though they had not consummated that relationship. Now, Caesar thinks that he is sovereign, but through that little inconvenience, God is working an incredible story. I want to give this little principle. We often look for God working in the miraculous, but far more frequently, God works in the providential. We expect some sort of explosion or bright light or something, but far more often, the mundane things that are just happening in the world, God is superintending the devices of other people for his purpose perfectly. So now verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for, her, came for her to give birth. That's it. That's all we get. This is Dr. Luke, who would loved, I'm sure, to have given all sorts of narrative, all sorts of description and discussion to talk about all the different animals that were there, to describe the setting. We have a tendency to try to sanitize the setting and to pretend that there was no manure in this animal stable. <laughs> but there was. And into that filth and foul comes the eternal Son of God himself. Luke gives us no detail. We don't hear about the innkeeper, you know, at the Motel 6, leaving the light on for you, being grumpy and not letting them in. No, 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 no. There's no detail here. 
And so tradition has tried to fill in those details. The innkeeper, there's no innkeeper. It's not a hotel. The inn simply means the upper room where the guests of the family would have stayed. But it's full because other family had to come in and be registered for this census as well. So there's nowhere to put them. So more than likely, you can go to Bethlehem today and see shepherd's caves. These caves are sort of built into the sides of houses. So they have to go into this cave. It's not glamorous. Luke gives us virtually no detail. Now, we know that the gospel of Luke largely relies on Mary's testimony. So much of what happened could only have come from Mary. But in this case, it's very interesting. She chooses to give him nothing. The reason we figure is because in verse 19, we'll get there later, she pondered, she treasured these things in her heart. When the Son of God comes into the flesh by her natural cause. It's just too holy of a moment. Maybe she did describe it. And Luke says, I just can't write it. It's just too much. That's all we get of the coming of God himself, the sendable self of the Godhead into vulnerable, defenseless human form. And we have to understand what Luke's doing. In those days, Caesar is king. He is the savior of the world. Pivot chapter 2. And then there's a little baby whose mommy was from Nazareth. Everybody knows that Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. It's Micah chapter 5 verse 2. We talked about it last week. Why wouldn't God just have some girl from Bethlehem be the bearer of the Messiah? Because Caesar Augustus thinks he's sovereign. But God is actually controlling all of the cosmos. And he's going to use this little Galilean backwater girl hick from the sticks and march her all the way down south to Bethlehem to demonstrate that he alone will get the glory. It's incredibly inconvenient for Joseph and Mary. It's a scandal for him to show up in Bethlehem with a woman who's pregnant and he's not married. It's going to have to require them that they get new jobs, new employ, new relationships, reacquaint themselves with distant family. In fact, ultimately, they're going to have to go to Egypt. I don't know how bad your birth process was, ladies. I'm guessing you didn't have to go to Egypt immediately thereafter, which brings up an important principle. What we view as an inconvenience, God frequently uses to point other people to Christ. So I'm speaking to myself Be hesitant when your first impulse and reflex is to complain about your circumstance. There's a very good chance God is putting you in position to point someone else to the Savior. My wife has wisely put on our refrigerator door, have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it? Short answer, no. Long answer, not yet. Longer answer, perhaps one day I will. We're getting there. Verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's where she had to put him. Why? Because there was no place. Why? Because that room was already full. Why? Because Caesar had decreed a census. Or so it seems. Let's continue. Verse 8, Record scratch moment. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Who cares about shepherds? We're talking about the coming of the Christ. Well, in that same region, 
there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's the dark of the dark, the night of the night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to, <laughs> to them. Now, I'll tell you, I've had the opportunity on multiple occasions to be in that part of the world, both in Israel and in Jordan and in Egypt. And I've, on every occasion, had the opportunity to meet and be near some shepherds. Just take my word for it that then as now, these are the bottom of the social barrel. They are the lowest rung on the ladder of society. These are guys that you would think twice and thrice before you let them use your fancy powder bathroom. They're grisly. They're gritty. They're kind of gruesome. And to them, an angel of the Lord. This struck me all over again. We have a tendency in our society to celebrate the big deeds of big fancy people. But that's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is that the things God seems to care about the most are when a six-year-old in privacy of his home hears the Christmas story. And nobody named Kardashian in the world cares about that at all. But God does. Those are eternal moments. We have a tendency to think that the big things in our world are what take place on a Tuesday in November. God's not all that concerned. But when a life group gathers around the gospel and encourages, equips, edifies one another, the angelic realm proclaims the glories of God. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. They feared fearsomely. It's a double word in the Greek. They feared, feared. They feared great, great, great fear. They hit the deck. They're out in the darkest dark of the wilderness. There's no light out there. There's not, you can't see this. And they're most likely looking after the sheep that will ultimately, ultimately be offered for Passover. It is the dark of the dark, and they are the low of the low. And into that comes the glory of God. That's so often how it works. In fact, God is always working for his glory and our good, whether we're prepared, whether we recognize, whether we understand it. He is always, whether we feel it or not, working for his glory and for our good. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, why did he have to tell them to fear not? Because they were, as Linus says, sore afraid. They were horrified. And the angel's going to do something marvelous here. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I give you the gospel. The very first preacher of the gospel was an angel. And you will never hear an angel preach the gospel again. From this moment forward, it is left to us, the shepherds, if you will, to preach the gospel. You'll never hear. I'm thinking they're a better communicator than we are. But no, God entrusts the glory, the grandeur, the goodness, and the grace of the gospel to the likes of us. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, and behold, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, starting with you, shepherds. Now, this is interesting. All the people is singular. 
Specifically, it's for Israel at this point. And then Jesus is going to tell us something even more majestic, that it's for everybody, all the peoples, because he's the promise of Genesis chapter 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, threefold description, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. (laughs) The angel essentially says, oh, you think Caesar Augustus, you think he's a thing? He's not a thing. This vulnerable, defenseless child laid amongst the straw and the filth. He is Savior. Why is that important? Because he will remove that thing that so corrupts and infects every human being, their sin. He is Savior. Augustus is not the Savior of the world. In fact, he's responsible for an unquantifiable amount of bloodshed and death. No, he will be Savior He is Christ. He is the anointed one, the slathered one, quite literally. He is the one God says, this is my instrument of salvation. It's him. It's this little baby in a manger. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord of the hosts of the armies of heaven. It's this defenseless, vulnerable little baby. Unto you, in the city of David, in Bethlehem, is born this one who is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. And verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. A sign. This is an important prophetic term. A semeon. It's what John records in the book of Revelation. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The observant amongst you will notice this is the second time Luke mentions this. Verse 7 and verse 12. My sense is that as he gets this from Mary, she says, don't you see? He's wrapped in cloths. He's lying in a trough. Luke, don't you understand? More on that in a moment. Verse 13, And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Just erupts. One angel made the shepherds quake and tremble in fearing fear. And then the entirety of the angelic realm. How many is that? More than a dozen. It's been said hosts of hosts is millions upon millions. Explode in the night sky. And they are saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Please, I implore you, please, I beg you, note the order of the angelic proclamation. Glory to God and peace on earth. That sequence is vital. There will be no peace on earth until glory is given to God. All of the other strivings, all of the other efforts and musings and schemes and things that we attempt, all the rebellions we posit, there will be no peace on earth until glory is given to God. And by the way, that's the gospel. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven. I love this imagery. There the shepherds are minding their own filthy business. Boom! One angel shows up and they fear with great fear. And then the entirety of them just explode on the scene. And then you sort of get the idea that the angels themselves, they just sort of slowly trickle away. They don't want to go. They cannot believe that the God, the creator of the cosmos, has become this infant. And they want to see how will those people who were created in his image, how will they respond? And the angels sort of seem to linger. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. By the way, one of the earliest descriptions of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. It's what we always want to be about. Verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Do you know why? Because that's precisely what God would, said would happen. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They, come, they came and saw. They went and told. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The moment was just too much. She pondered. And I'll tell you, I was convicted this week in preparation. When was the last time I just sat still and treasured and pondered that the creator of the cosmos came in vulnerable human form? In those days, in those days, in these days, in the midst of all the fear and the futility and the fallenness and the fragility, Christmas is the end of fear. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. You see, when you really hear the gospel, everything's different. All the things we were upset about, all the things we were shaking our fist and clenching our teeth and griping on the internet, shepherds had the internet back then, just take my word for that, all of those things are now different because the Son of God has come in those days, in these days. Now, there is some marvelous imagery in this wonderful Christmas story that I don't want us to miss. We've already sung about it this morning. Luke gives it to us twice. You will find a child wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. We're so used to that. When you talk to people of the ancient Near East and historians, they will say, yes, at times, children were wrapped in cloths to straighten their limbs or to make them feel cozy. But that was not actually a normative process. That is how God said, I want you to wrap this child in cloths and lay it in a manger. And by the way, a manger, as much as we would like for it to be, this wonderfully symmetrical wooden made out of pallet wood from a forklift pallet, symmetrical and triangular and prismatic, it's not a manger. A manger is a stone that's been roughly hewn as a feeding trough for animals. We can't fully appreciate and glory in the coming of Christ until we understand what Luke is doing. See, in the coming of Christ, there's a man named Joseph who was there as this Jesus is wrapped in cloths and laid in this stone trough. And then you get to the end of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 23, verse 53. And there's another man named Joseph who takes this Jesus dead off the cross, wraps him in cloth, and places him in a stone tomb that had never been used by anybody. I guarantee nobody had ever laid a baby in that stone trough before Jesus. His birth is a demonstration that he has come to be Savior, Christ, and Lord. This baby comes to die. 
We said this last week. Christmas is not sentimental. Christmas is supernatural. When we ponder the coming of Christ at Advent, I hope and pray and eagerly anticipate and expect that all of us will stop and go, this baby was laid as a foreshadowing, as a foretelling. He was going to die, wrapped in cloths, placed in a stone compartment because he is Christ. He is Savior. He is Lord. Now listen, there's a lot going on in our world. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid. In those days, in these days, a lot had changed since God spoke last in Malachi chapter 4. And candidly, a lot has changed in our world since we gathered together last Christmas season. And all sorts of different reasons to fear. My heart's burden is that increasingly the people of God have lost the wonder and were overly characterized by fear, which is why my final point is simply that which the angel said to the shepherds. Fear not! Behold! When the anxiety, the tension, the fear, the futility comes, fear not! Behold! He has come! Christmas is the end of fear, do you see? Direct your will, direct your heart, your soul, your mind. Consider that the Christ has come laid wrapped in cloths in a stone trough, and it happened to him yet a second time. We need not fear anything. We need not even fear be taken advantage of. It's happened to the people of God for millennia. Fear not. Behold. Many of us are gripped and seized with fear for all different kinds of things. There is a what we might say an empire. It's a microscopic one that has seized the world, or so it seems. Fear not. Behold. Some of us are gathering together to worship. Some of us are not. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. If you're here and you're worshiping with us on any of our floors, praise God. If you're here and you cannot, or you're joining us online and you cannot be here for various reasons, glory to God. But if you're staying away simply because of fear, I implore you, you mustn't. We can still join together. We will practice distance. We'll even wear the obligatory handkerchiefs or whatever. But fear not, behold, and may we be characterized by joy, just like the lowest of the low and the darkest of the dark, like the shepherds that we are. May we come and see. May we go and tell. Fear not, Behold. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for the message, the reality of Christmas. We do pray, God, that you will use this text, this passage, to shine light in our darkness, to invade and intervene into our fear and futility, because we have peace with you already. And so may we, your people, live as though that were true. Father, if there's anyone here this morning for whom Christmas has merely been a sentimental season on the calendar where presents are exchanged. I pray you will intervene and invade. and You will bring life into death, light into darkness. You will move by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus. For the rest of us, Father, who perhaps are gripped by fear, would you, by your indwelling Spirit, lead us to behold the mystery, the majesty, the marvel of first advent as we eagerly prepare 
for Second Advent. May these, your people, be characterized by good cheer. Father, we love you because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.